Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Kitchen Table. I am Justin White. I am sitting here next to the talent, Josh Winter, as always. I'm the DJ. He's the rapper. There's a little new twist for you, Josh. That's a good one, because I'm still trying to figure out the whole talent thing. Yeah. I'm, I, I sit in here, and I just try to figure out what the value is that I'm supposed to bring to this as the talent. But thank you. It's all the value. <laughs> and we are sitting here today with Dr. Judith Long. This, as we were explaining earlier, is our first friend of the podcast. This is our first <laughs> returning guest. So number two for you. Thanks for coming. All right. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Friend of the podcast, friend of the fire department. Mm -hmm. Friend Absolutely. of everybody. Yes. And driver engineer extraordinaire, station A. B-Shift? I got them all. Station A B-Shift. John Giacoma, thanks for coming. Thank you. Actually, Doc, yes. you invited us. I did. To be here, and mm -hmm. we thank you for that. Um, we're always looking for new things to talk about other than leadership. We, we talk about leadership a lot on the show, um, and we really hope that People don't get bored with it just because we enjoy the topic and it's easy for us to talk about. It, it leaks into a lot of our our podcast, so it's nice to have um, other topics and other people suggest topics. Although this one is a little bit um, solemn, Som would you say? Somber. It can be. Somber, yeah. can be somber. Um, we're talking about suicide awareness. Um, this is Suicide Awareness Month, correct? It is. Okay, mm -hmm. and so we're going to dis discuss that a little bit here at the kitchen table today. Uh, what is it? Is it a problem? How do you recognize some of the signs and symptoms and how can we help? So thanks for inviting us on to our own podcast. We appreciate that. Um, so is this actually a problem? Because as I was describing earlier to you, I didn't recognize it as a problem until you presented it to me because I, I haven't seen it and I haven't experienced it, but that doesn't mean it's not there. So is this, is this an actual problem? Sorry to interrupt. Question before we get into that too. Is this a fire service problem or we're talking about in the fire service yeah. in general? Mm -hmm. Why do you ask if it's a problem or not? What makes you doubt that it is? Well, I think it's because I haven't experienced it. Okay. So it hasn't been outwardly presented to me. It's not something that I've experienced in the fire service or in my real life. Okay. Or my life outside the fire service. Not that this life is any less real than the other life, but my life outside the fire service. So I just, I, it's out of ignorance that I say, is it a problem? And so I'm looking for some education on, you know, defining this as a problem and, you know, how do we do that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't know where to start on answering that question, but I feel like, you know, it's a problem nationally outside the fire service. Mm -hmm. I feel like it's a problem within the fire service. And I do worry about it being a problem within our department. Um, you know, we announced in the broadcast that there have been individuals that we've helped as a peer support team with, you know, suicidal ideation, suicidal attempts. So it is a problem. And for me, I'll just be very honest, it is a problem that lurks in the darkness, right? It's not always one that I get to see outwardly in people. And that scares me as the clinician for the department because I can't truly know how many people out there are struggling with suicidal thoughts or um, even you know, developing plans like they just don't want to be here anymore. And that scares me as yeah. a clinician because it operates in the dark. And part of the reason I wanted this part podcast was to 
shine some light on it so it's not in the dark anymore. So interestingly enough, in the first two minutes of this podcast, you already opened my eyes to something. So I asked the question, are we talking about the fire service or are we talking about society in general? And with what you just said, what I recognized is with the fire service, we have a little bit of control over that part of our world. With society, we don't have much control over what Mm -hmm. society's doing, but that helps me look at it from a different perspective. It's like, okay, in our world, in the fire service, we do have a way to impact this. So thank you. Yeah, and <laughs> right off the bat, you know, one of the things I, you know, I did bring the stats along with me here today, but you know, one of the things I worry about is we'll listen to the stats and we won't apply it to our own department, you know, because we haven't seen um, a suicide in our department, and I don't, I don't know how long, not certainly since I've been here for twelve years, and I don't want to depersonalize these numbers, you know, for every suicide that happens, it's not like that's the only person that's thought about suicide. Hundreds of others have thought about suicide. It's just that only one person went to, you know, completion out of that that hundred, you know. So we need to keep that in mind, too. I don't want to depersonalize those numbers. They apply to us, too. We do have we do have one. I mean, it's we did have a retiree that ended up, you know, ultimately taking their own Mm -hmm. life. Um, Mm -hmm. And so and there are people that are still on the job that worked with that person. Um, so I, I do know that there is some personal impact to some of our organization right now, just from that one individual outside of, um, you know, the regional um, suicides that we've had over the last out, mm-hmm. you know, however many years. Yeah, it's true. Um, whenever I ask any given group of people, like within the fire departments, like who here has been affected by suicide, either friend, family member, or coworker. I would say about 90% raise their hands every time. So I know that, you know, for every suicide we talk about, you know, that's that's a number, but that number can be multiplied by, you know, tens or hundreds of the people who are impacted by that suicide. So it's not like, I don't know, if you look at the one number, that's all we really need to pay attention to. It's like, who did that suicide affect um, sitting here and continues to affect as time goes on? You know, the kids who lost a parent, um, the brothers and sisters who lost a sibling, uh, the crew who lost a team member. You know, that doesn't just happen and it's over. It persists for years after that, that pain, that sorrow. Right. John, have you have you at all been touched by suicide? Because I, I haven't. Like I said, I'm, I'm the one in 10, right, um, that hasn't, hasn't experienced this from anybody all the folks that you mentioned, friend, friends, family, or anything like that, or self. So. Yes, uh, absolutely. So before this job, I served in the Marine Corps Infantry, and uh, consistent with some of the numbers we'll talk about today, we're saying you know, there's almost as many suicides that have occurred as line-of-duty deaths, and we were seeing the same, same prevalence uh, after I got out of the Marine Corps, seeing that there are units that saw a lot of action who actually lost more people afterward to suicides than they did during operations. And that operational number wasn't small to begin with. So um, definitely touched by a handful of them myself uh, after getting out. So lost several friends in combat operations, but then probably just as many afterward. Uh, So that data definitely reflected in my experience as well. 
Um, some of them were within a few years of getting out. Some of them were 10 years after getting out. But it's something that I think if you talk to any combat vet from the last 20 years, they'll probably have a similar story, especially coming from the combat arms side of the house. So definitely before I got to this job, experienced um, a, a lot of the suicide topic. Uh, just as many probably near misses or you know situations that could have gone one way that end up going the other i actually have my own personal experience i can share throughout our conversation with that as well um, but here on this job you know i've only been on this department since 2013 and i've personally been in the inner circle of a few that could have gone that way um, whether it was just that midnight call or being there to take a gun out of somebody's hand. And that's, that's our work group. That's not a, an abstract number or somebody from across the country. That's from our own work group that you know, we fortunately have been able to touch from the peer support side or even before being part of the peer support team formally. Um, those situations have been here and are here, uh, kind of beneath the surface, uh, surface, like Judith said, kind of in the dark. Um, so we've been very close to burying members to the suicide issue. That's part of why we're here mm-hmm. to talk about it. Sure. Josh, do you, have, you, have you ever been touched by anything like this? Uh, yes. So mine, mine goes pretty far back. Um, before I got on this job, the tail end of my, of my military service, and I wasn't in the, the military you know, during wartime. I was in during all peacetime. But um, I was working for NATO in the Netherlands, and um, a buddy of mine, Jeroen, who was um, – you know, like we have like the work wife here that we call it, you know, the best friend in the department. Um, he was a really close friend of mine. He was a groomsman in my wedding. Um, I left the Netherlands, came back, got on the job here. And uh, about four years ago, he took his own life. Um, he, still, he was still a firefighter in the Netherlands. He got out of the Air Force, got a civilian job in the fire service. And to this day, um, you know, I have no idea what the reason for him taking his life was. I don't yeah. know if it's job-related or life or what. Um, but the interesting thing was I had no and, and we kept in touch over the years, but I had no clue. Like, I had no idea that anything was going on in his life. Um, you know, he was always happy. He was, you know, never seemed to have any issues. And, um, and then I hear from his dad through social media. Um, his dad wanted me to call him, and I called him, and his dad told me that, uh, that he had taken his life. Um, so that's, that's the closest that, you know, that I've been to having a close friend and somebody in the fire service take their life. So it has, it's had an impact on me as well. Sure. So what are, what are some of the statistics? And I want to take a look at those and maybe, you know, put them in the context of our fire department. Because if you just look at sheer numbers and um, I'm, I'm sure you'll give us a percentage. And if we apply that to, you know, say by 500, multiply each of those numbers by five, then you can kind of get the magnitude or the context within our fire department. That makes sense. Okay. Well, I hope I don't disappoint you in my math skills here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, we know that for the past five years that the number of suicides in the fire service have exceeded the line of duty deaths. Um, And so that's something important to just note right off the bat. Uh, For, I don't know how far back to go here, but for 2020, uh, we had 127 firefighter slash EMS suicides. So let me just talk about that number when I say firefighter slash EMS. The person who does the data collection is Jeff Dill. He's with the Firefighter Behavioral Health Alliance. So far, he is the only one we know of that tracks this 
uh, information with any degree of accuracy, <laughs> right? Because it's kind of hard to track with accuracy. There's so much stigma around suicide, especially in the fire service and other first responders that not all things get reported as suicide. So an example would be, was a drug overdose intentional um, to bring about you know, the end of one's life or was it accidental? Sometimes you just can't tell, right? And when there's room, when there's wiggle room, to call it not suicide, people tend to choose that path. So we don't even know um, what the numbers we're reporting, how accurate they are, but Jeff Dill does a really good job of collecting information and performing kind of deep analyses of each of the reports he gets to make that determination. So in 2020, it was 127 firefighters slash EMS suicides, and he combines both of those into one category. Um, so EMS could be someone in the fire service but EMS could also include someone who's with transport, like AMR, sure. as well. Can you quickly say where you're reading that? that that's online, correct? It is. It is through the most recent uh, Rudderman report uh, that's available online. We could provide that as a link, I think, sure. for yeah, the podcast. Absolutely. It is, a, you know, interesting to read through um, to try to understand the problem, you know, from you know, like a deep dive perspective, and also from a a higher level perspective. Um, it does include data around all first responders. So the Rotterdam report is not specific to firefighters. It is also for law enforcement and dispatch and other first responder entities. So what other questions did you have about the stats? Uh, do they get, I don't know if they give a percentage of, and that seems pretty low. They so don't. I mean, yeah, so I mean, you're hundreds of thousands of uh, first responders within United States, and I don't know if they include Canada in that as well. Um, but even if you looked at, and I guess, if even if it's one percent of the community, which obviously it's smaller than that, I mean that means there's five people here that are struggling with this mm -hmm. right now, and we don't even know it. Right. Um, so what are what are some of the signs? Because uh, you know you speak of you know people that you've worked with just here within the department that have come close and you've had experience with it and obviously in your capacity you've talked to folks with suicidal ideologies. Um, what are some of the things to look for? Because I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm strictly the layperson here and maybe I've missed it. Maybe I've missed the flags. Maybe I've missed the warnings because, you know, I'm naive about it um, and maybe can do a better job at, at you know, one, recognizing those signs and symptoms um, of these type of things, of people's struggles, and then be better at listening and, and, and helping those people through their problems. Did you want to take that one, or do you want me to go? Probably you. For that okay. One. Specific well, signs, yeah. Well, I think the answer is it's really difficult to find signs and symptoms in the firefighter population. Um, you're not prone to exhibiting those warning signs like the general population is, but I'll say a couple of things around that. One is uh, isolation or withdrawal, especially if that person isn't typically that way. Um, a sudden change in mood, like they were feeling kind of down and now they feel kind of happy, but you couldn't really connect a reason as to why there would be a huge turnaround. So, you know, what might be happening on the, the backside there is that um, when someone is feeling really overwhelmed by life, once they make that decision to take their own life, they actually feel a, you know, some sense of relief and they have a plan. Um, they know that their pain is going to end soon. So they 
tend to be happier because they have that plan. So I would look for things like that. Um, you know, increased use of a substance, uh, particularly alcohol, uh, would be a good warning sign in the fire service. Uh, but going back to what I said before, you're not likely to exhibit signs and symptoms the way the general public does, which means that there's something else going on there. And my theory is that if you exhibit any of those signs and symptoms, you're acutely aware of what will happen. You know that people are going to ask you a question. You know that people are going to maybe recommend you go and be evaluated. And I'll just be honest, as a clinician, I do not like some of the evaluation processes we have for the general public, let alone for our first responders. So it's the fear of what's going to happen to me. I'm going to lose control of the situation um, if I say anything. And so you don't exhibit those signs and symptoms. Yeah, to, I guess, piggyback on that, I think we're really good, especially doing 24-hour shift work. I think we can probably fake it pretty well for a while. So if we're only exposed to each other on 24-hour basis, um, depending on the relationships outside of shift work, I think you could probably get by for a while without anybody really picking up on those cues. I think it could either be chalked up to this is just how they are, so maybe not seeing those changes, um, or recognizing, like Judith said, increasing your use of substances or uh, kind of changes in behavior. If those aren't erratic over a 24-hour period, we may not recognize. It may be attributed to that's just how somebody is or that's just how somebody behaves off work. Um, so without having those closer relationships, we may not pick up very readily on those on those cues. Yeah, and I think shame is something that would prevent someone from reaching out to. You know, I try to address this in the broadcast. One in five people, adults, will think about suicide at some point in their life. Doesn't mean they made a plan, but they're gonna think about it. And we lose sight of that, that suicidal thoughts are sometimes pretty common for us as human beings, right? We don't need a mental illness to get us to that space. We need to feel life just coming down on us and making us feel like we can't, I can't do this. I don't know how to figure this out. And have that emotional pain level go up so high where you're like, I just, I just can't do this anymore. And so there's shame in thinking that way when in fact it's actually something quite common across the adult population. Well, if you look at that, see there's one of those statistics, one in five people, there's a hundred people just right here, mm -hmm. you know, right in our own department that are struggling with life and, and, and you know, may see that as a way out um, because the pain is so, so great they don't, they don't see another way. Mm -hmm. So. So, John, it seems like you have a story to tell, um, and, I, and I don't know what it is. We haven't sure. talked about it before. No. Um, what's your story? Tell us about your journey a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you actually led into it a, perfectly, but I'll, I'll give a little background first. So, um, 2001, I was living in Arizona and started college in August at 18, and then the very next month we had September 11th, so within maybe three weeks of starting college, I started already thinking about maybe enlisting and naively at the time thinking, oh, this will be like Desert Storm where it'll be over in a few months and there won't even be a fight. So let's wait and see what this looks like. Well, of course, fast forward 20 years, we're still messing around over there. Um, so I waited a bit before I actually took the step and was going to college and not particularly enjoying or having much of a direction with it. So by 03, I decided to make the step, joined the Marine Corps, insisted on the infantry 
and uh, served from 03 to 07. Uh, got to deploy to Iraq and saw combat operations in Al Anbar province of Iraq. Uh, came back in 07 and was kind of faced with either re-enlisting or actually re-enlisting while I was still over there or choosing to get out. And it was a compressed timeline where I either needed to raise my hand again over there or come back. And I was fairly burnt out at the time and thought it's time to go back to the, back to the world. So um, I got out in November of 07 and went straight into culinary school because I decided I wanted to use my GI Bill, but I wasn't really eager to go right back to college right away per se. Uh, so I thought I'll do a trade school. I always had a little interest in cooking. I thought it might be a good transition period from getting out and back into the real world. Um, realized pretty quickly that that was going to be more challenging than I thought. Um, the quick turnaround of coming straight back from deployment, cutting the ties to all my friends out in Camp Pendleton, going right back to Arizona with none of the same friends or anything out there. Is that isolation that Judith talked about. There's a fair amount of that and also just the culture shock of going right back from pretty pretty big change, pretty big experience to right back to the world and also picking up some habits while I was in. So I, I think we used to joke, dark humor I guess, we used to joke that at First Light Armored Reconnaissance Battalion a slow Tuesday was, you know, the, the wildest, uh, a slow Tuesday in the barracks was the kind of the wildest uh, weekend party at a college dorm so that was kind of our experience with drinking and everything it was just culturally that's just what we did in between and um, not anything that anyone would probably recognize as a problem when I'm 22 and that's just what we do and but then getting out and being 24 and then 25 and realizing that getting back in the real world this probably isn't the greatest combination um, started realizing probably had a little bit of a drinking problem so Naturally, didn't do a thing about it for years. Um, I was working in that culinary profession, not particularly enjoying it, almost immediately regretting getting out of the Marine Corps, thinking maybe I should just re-up and go back in like nothing ever happened. Um, within a few months of getting out, buried a couple more friends that had been in other units um, and died overseas, uh, immediately dealing with that survivor's guilt of, I don't deserve to be back here with all my fingers and toes, I should be over there doing X. Um, maybe I should have just stayed. Um, a couple suicides along the way. Um, kind of all of those things at once. And naturally, my coping mechanism was let's just keep doing more of what I already know, which was drinking. And naturally, that didn't lead to anything positive. So over the course of a couple years and being in toxic relationships, drinking, um, pretty much getting as dark as I'd ever been, I was never really confronted with that situation of suicidal ideation. Like sober, I would never, I would never found my spot, myself in a spot where I would end it or that that was an option or that I was sitting around in the dark wondering if, if it would be better if I was gone. None of those things that we typically talk about. Um, but I did find that only when I was drinking was that something that might have entered the equation. Of course, things had to get worse before they got better. So. By 2010, so I'd been out for three years by then, I found myself in a situation where combination of toxic relationship, blowing up with a, a fight, argument, uh, lots of alcohol, concert got canceled, we ended up at a bar drinking, that drinking led to arguments and digging up a lot of old stuff, 
And that led to me almost shooting myself in the parking lot of a sushi restaurant in Arizona. So could have checked out in November of 2010, very close. I can't say I remember it clearly because I was probably too drunk to remember, but the way I remember it was my father and stepmom showing up in the parking lot because apparently I had texted my stepmom along the way. My dad wouldn't know how to text if you forced him. So <laughs> it was, I, somewhere along the way, I had enough clarity to say, this is something bad's going to happen. I need you to come get me. Of course, without context. So they came flying there. Fortunately, saw it, got there in time. And I vividly remember my dad taking my pistol, which was in my lap on a table, something like that in this parking lot and saying, what, what's going on with, with this? Taking the gun, saying, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go to a hospital along the way convinced him that no I didn't need that I just needed to go home and sleep it off he was willing to do that um, but the next morning I woke up not feeling great getting out of the guest room of my dad's house and seeing my dad and stepmom sleeping on opposite couches so I basically spent the night on suicide watch so that was thanks the next morning was Thanksgiving of 2010 and had the fortunately had enough of a dark spot to recognize that I need to stop drinking for a little while. At that time, a little while, I didn't really have any context to. I didn't give myself a deadline or a timeline or anything, but it, by the end of that day, I think I recognized that this needs to be at least a year. I need to be completely divorced from this for a year. Um, the fortunate thing with that is I had met my wife along the way who was, lived here in Colorado, and the way, the way life works out, I had flown out here to be in my best friend's wedding, who was my best friend in the Marine Corps. Um, he had married my future wife's sister. So in a roundabout way, my best friend and I ended up marrying sisters mm -hmm. um, who both still live here in Colorado. So that was the avenue to me meeting my wife, who we were long distance at the time. And that gave me the combination of something motivating to work for, work toward. So positive relationship instead of the toxic relationships I was getting involved in. Um, the clarity of this, if this isn't rock bottom, it probably needs to be. Um, and making that step, I guess, I'd had plenty of people say, you should do this, you should do that. And it, what it made me realize and the message I try to give anybody is it's really not until we get there for ourselves that we're actually committed to making that change. So the change for me was I need to go a year sober. That needs to be the starting point. Well, a year went by, and I was able to, with a little bit of clarity, start doing counseling, go to the vet center, go to the VA, with some mixed results, but to not give up as soon as I hit the first roadblock. And with that, uh, made it to two years, and then three years, and then by 2011, I had moved out here, knowing that I wanted to join the fire service, that the cooking industry I had kind of stepped into was a fun skill set to know, but not the career I saw myself doing until retirement and the fire service interested me but it was also the timing of me getting out of the Marine Corps was 2007 which was right before the recession so right about the time I got interested in the public continuing public service just in a different way I had a family friend out in Phoenix who was a Phoenix uh, PD detective who said hey you should try to you should apply for the police department I could put in a good word like a letter recommendation all that stuff um, I said, I really don't see myself being a cop. 
And so he said, well, in that case, you really need to join the fire service between the cooking thing and your, you kind of have the team <laughs> attitude and like you really want to you want to reenlist for the reasons of missing your guys and the team, the esprit de corps, the camaraderie, all those things you miss. I don't know that reenlisting is really your thing. Coincidentally, this guy had been a Marine in the uh, Gulf War, so he had some context to it as well. So that kind of got me looking around the fire service, but it was also when the recession hit and nobody was even testing. So I set that on the back burner for a few years. But then all those things converge, and in 2011, I had started testing out here before I even moved. And at the end of 2011, kind of took the leap of faith, came out here. My wife and I were at the point of flying back and forth for a while, and it got to that point of who's moving where. She was willing to go to Phoenix, and I was willing to come here. And I said, I'm ready for a hard reset anyway, so let me move to Colorado. I'd been here for that wedding, and that was it. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a leap, other than the flying back and forth on a random weekend. Uh, so I moved out here in 11. It took a couple of years of testing and C-banding, B-banding, A-banding. Um, got on a list with Denver and thought that that was going to happen. And then in the meantime, in February 2013, got hired with Springs. And I said, well, let me stay on that list with Denver just in case I twist an ankle and I get flushed out of the academy. I'll at least have a backup. And then the minute I got through CSFD Academy in 2013, um, pulled my name from that Denver list and I'll never know what would have happened there. So, and then happily been here ever since. And that sort of merges into with Judith, uh, how we got connected and my role in even being here with you guys today on this podcast is specific to the t suicide topic. Um, the retiree suicide that we were talking about earlier had just occurred. That led to really, it was this period of that time because you and uh, Chief McConaughey were doing a broadcast about firefighter suicide or suicide in general. And I, I was a probationary firefighter at Station 6 and got to watch that. And that's what really let me know that there was a peer support team at all or that we had a mechanism for the fire service to address those things. And that would put me about three years completely sober, three years of processing some other, I mean, I had subsequent Marines take their lives, um, contextualizing kind of the things that I was dealing with with the survivor's guilt, um, acknowledging a brain injury from deployment and getting actually treated for that and all how the PTSD, TBI kind of paradigms overlap and all those things were going on while I joined the fire department. Um, but watching Judith and Jamie on that broadcast kind of let me know that there is something for PTSD for behavioral health within the fire service, and I had no idea. I showed up to the fire academy not knowing the difference between an engine and a truck. I was brand new to this. Um, so I had reached out to then Captain McConaughey at Station 10 and said, I don't know if this is a thing that you guys already look at or not, but sent her an email saying, I'm a now third-class firefighter. We've never even probably, you wouldn't know who I am, but said, is there a mechanism in place for say those who had prior service like me that maybe if they weren't dealing with something related to EMS or the fire service or the um, any anything that they might deem job related is there a mechanism for somebody to reach out with those maybe outside the fire service concerns so maybe for example the person that says I'm dealing with something from five years ago ten years ago that predates this job might not reach out to a peer supporter thinking it doesn't relate to this job or it's not related to a call or cumulative stress of this line of work. And so that led to 
Jamie and I having conversations about what could that look like, and it was always something with Judith's, Judith's background and dealing with combat vets. It was kind of a natural overlap to have that conversation, and that was before I was ever part of the peer support team officially, but that was that just got the conversation going of what that could look like. Could there be a veteran's component to it where somebody won't, we won't miss somebody or have somebody slip through because what they're dealing with is predating this job and that maybe the people on the peer support list wouldn't be the right people to reach out to because they wouldn't understand or any of those classic excuses we give ourselves. Uh, so that led to that conversation and the relationship and of me eventually joining the peer support team and I've been talking a long time so I can let Judith chime in on what that relationship is too but uh, yeah that's a little bit of my motivation for I guess one my own personal story but being part of the peer support team what it's becoming what it's what it has become under the leadership that Judith and Jamie brought to it and the rest of our team uh, but where we want to take it in the future too so we don't ever miss anybody or have somebody think that there's not something for them or that there's not a resource available. Um, the stigma that J Judith talked about, you know, it, to me, in my mind, and not being a clinician, but just anecdotally and through experiences with people, good and bad, I think the best way to get rid of that stigma is to put a face to it, which is what makes me willing to talk about my story and talk about things that I've gone through and witnessed. The sad part being that my story is not particularly unique or interesting in that sense, that it's not it's more common than we probably care to admit. Socially, within our line of work, within the military, whatever it is, it's fairly common and somebody's probably got a similar story to tell. So I think our willingness to put our own faces up there and say, this is what I've dealt with, whether it's substance abuse or depression or PTSD or the cumulative stress of this job, um, relationship issues, whatever it is, suicide, if we're willing to put known faces to it, it takes those numbers, which are really valuable, and makes them relevant, makes them local, um, and hopefully resonates with somebody so they do reach out and get help. Well, I really appreciate you sharing that story. I don't want to get all clinician on you, but... Please do. Like, there are things that stand out to me about that story, and uh, one of them was just the, you know, alcohol and how it impaired yeah. it's kind of like having a chemical lobotomy right sure you know so that's why we feel like that risk of suicide goes up with increased substance use yeah you talked about the shame part of it and i think that might have been one of the reasons i could do a bit of a cold turkey quit and that ended up being what's now been it'll be 12 years in november since i've touched a drop of anything uh part of it was that shame of I wasn't somebody sitting around every day thinking about how dark and dire my situation was. Maybe I'm sure there was some self-pity in there somewhere, but it wasn't something that was going to drive me to suicide. It wasn't something I had a plan for. It wasn't something that I, other than making bad choices and maybe self-defeating behaviors along the way, I wasn't really showing probably the classic signs. Um, but only once I let myself get to a certain point with alcohol was that ever even an option. So mm -hmm. I think that realization that man, that never would have happened sober. Like, as bad as I could have ever gotten, I don't think I ever could have got there sober. And that all it really would have taken is that, that one night, like, for things to go this way instead of that way. And then thinking about all the subsequent things that I've had in my life, that none of that would have happened. Mm -hmm. And you talked about it touching everybody. I think about all the people I would have touched um, negatively. And 
yeah, really just the, the shame of that, I think, was part of what drove me to the, well, I'm only a few hours into this, but I know I need to commit to this at least for a year. Those first steps, I guess, were right. based very much in that shame. Because you didn't want to end up in the same spot you had been in before. Exactly. And yeah. if it could happen once, it could happen again. I thought about how that night could have gone instead. And, um, yeah, all those things you talk about with the, the, the shame being attached to it and the, with the alcohol being kind of the – it surely wasn't the underlying issue, but it was definitely the catalyst that could have led to that. So for me, it was delete that factor and I can work on the rest. That may not be an overnight process. It surely wasn't, but – um, I knew that part had to go because that was the only situation where I would end up in that place again. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned how the relationships were really important to you. So it was, you call it a toxic relationship or a yeah. set of toxic relationships, but you know, not having that support that you really need um, can drive you down one path, right? A pretty negative path. Yeah. But then when you found your wife, it was more of a positive um, form of support yeah. that allowed you to of engage in things in a, a way that um, brought you a lot ha- more happiness I hope yeah absolutely yeah any questions I feel like I'm taking over here so no oh I mean it's it, it, it's funny to me John that you said like oh like my story's not unique or anything like that but you do have a very powerful story um, and I think it's going to resonate with a lot of people who are dealing with different things because there's so many things in there that you touched on that I could in a way relate to, you sure. know, especially like alcohol and stuff like that. You know, I've been sober for about two years. Good. And, you know, when I hear people that are, you know, in a place like that and are continuing down the path that they're on in a positive way, it, it helps, you know, me continue down the path that I want to be on. So I'm sure it helps other people. We had, I hope uh, so. Yeah, yeah we had um, Troy Shipley, a guy that used to work here, uh, posted a couple nights ago um, something about being sober for a while. And that same night, I was going to a concert, and I walked in the door, and I'm like, oh, i got to get a beer, you know? And then I just remembered that post that Troy put about being sober, and I'm like, no, I don't need one. And so I just think that the things that we say, you know, it's that ripple effect that is going to impact somebody along the line. So, I mean, really the biggest thing I want to say is just thank you for your vulnerability and being willing to share your story because it's going to impact someone or a group of people or more people along the way in such a positive way. So, I mean, I just think this is such just big conversation. So a couple of things I want to touch on. The first thing is, is what, what brings us to that point? Is it just one thing, one time, one traumatic event, a parent dies, and we're at that point, is it a serious thing? And, it, and I guess this is kind of a clinical question. You know, what is it that brings us or what damages us enough? Because I don't think as a young kid, that's that's just something that happens. You know, we're not born with that. What is it that, that brings us to that point in our lives? Well, I, you're asking the fundamental question, which is why do people die by suicide, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, my profession doesn't have the answer to that question meaning that there are multiple paths, right? There's a story like John's, and there are many more who have a story like his, but then there are uh, so many other different pathways to suicide that it's hard to say there's only one or just a few. And so, you know, there's the classic path to suicide, which is related to um, a mental health issue like trauma or anxiety or uh, depression kind of leading 
into that bipolar disorder is a you know a disorder known for that uh, my sister-in-law took her own life after struggling for almost 50 years with bipolar disorder um, so mental illness is kind of one path into it but that really doesn't account for even half of the suicides that we we record uh, the other times are just related to feeling overwhelmed by life life can be really hard sometimes right it's like relentless right? it's relentlessly hard for us sometimes um, things come at us we don't know what to do we can handle the first few things but then more things come and we run out we just run out of that internal um, ability to kind of deal with what's coming in and to know what to do about what's coming at us and after a while it just becomes overwhelming and we experience emotional pain and emotional pain is something we don't know what to do about, right? You hurt your leg, you kind of know what to do about that. You go to the doctor, they do some stuff, maybe have surgery, maybe you get a cast, and you're on this path, and you know that this path, even though it hurts right now, that this path has a beginning and an end, and you know most of the time how long that journey is. Well, with emotional pain, we don't have that luxury. We have pain, and we don't even know where it is. We just feel it, and it feels so strong that we, we don't know how to address it, right? You can't take a couple ibuprofen and get rid of the emotional pain. You can't drink a little and or a lot and get uh, rid of the emotional pain. And so we're left with this burden and not knowing what to do with it. And over time, hopefulness slips away, right? Where, where is this going to go? This is never ending. The rest of my life is going to be this way. And so you went out. And the only way you can figure out how to get away from this emotional pain is to end your own life. If you talk to people who've made an attempt but did not actually uh, complete their suicide, they'll say, it's not like I wanted to die. I just, I just couldn't do this anymore. I need it out of this. So, you know, I don't know if I answered your question. There are multiple pathways. Yeah, and I think so. And I, and I, I think often we think about military service and the trauma they face in combat and think of well there's there's a that's the event right or mm -hmm. multiple events over a short period of time and i guess what i'm wondering is is in the fire service your career lasts 30 years so you may have multiple tra traumatic events over a long period of time that can affect you and you don't even know it is that mm -hmm. is that common within the fire service um, to that the traumatic events that we're a third party to or not we don't even know the person can affect us psychologically and, and, and either darken our days in our life outside the fire service or impact us in a way just within the fire service that causes causes us to kind of go down these paths right or affect the relationships that we have with others right if we look at some of the data around firefighter and EMS suicide they talk about 20% of those suicides being related to some type of relationship issue um, of which the job may have played a role in that relationship issue. And then John, I don't know if you wanted to talk about the backpack or, you know, that to kind of answer. Yeah, I mean, we kind of, you can choose your metaphor, right? But we talk about filling a bucket or filling your backpack and more of that cumulative, how many rocks can you fit in your backpack? And eventually something's either got to get offloaded or that thing overflows. Um, that's kind of a the simple, I guess, metaphor for the cumulative PTSD that you talk about. I, and I make the same connection that you did. You know, I 
tend to think of military side, there might be those acute events. Like it's, it was that loss or that event or that, uh, that stressor that, that maybe comes back as a pervasive thought or nightmare or something. And not to downplay those, but folks can generally point to something and say, that's what bothers me. Whereas in our profession, now having done both for a little bit, I do think it's probably leaning more toward the cumulative because even those acute events that may we may th- talk to ourselves about like that that was pretty messed up or that was something that I may think about again we may then later realize that oh we never had a dream about that or a pervasive thought or something so we can talk ourselves out of the acute but I think the cumulative over time is probably what and I'm speaking from a not a clinical perspective but I do think that that's just makes sense I think the fact that it's also here in our own streets. We're going to people's homes. It's different than, a, say, a deployment event um, in the military. And then also just the on-off of every day, whether it's 24 on, 24 off, or whatever shift model firefighters work or EMS people work or hospital workers. It's just that kind of nonstop of now I have to go home and be spouse, parent, uh, and other business, whatever folks do in their time off. I don't think it's a simple flipping of a switch. This isn't, I'm going to go to Iraq for seven months and I'm prepared for whatever that looks like. And I'm going to go through it with everybody who's going to be like-minded and doing the same thing. And then I'm going to come back and adjust to being back. This is kind of that on and off going home, going to work, going home, going to work and everything that goes in between. And like Judah said, all the life aspects too. Like I didn't have kids or a wife or any of that when I was in my early twenties in the Marine Corps. Um, I've got all those things now and thankful for that, but it's you know, just a different balancing act than what I'd ever done before. And this kind of shift work was different than anything I'd done before too. I think all of those things play a part in that cumulative. And I don't know that there's ever a point when we can say, well, right there at the 10 year mark or the five year mark or whatever, because that backpack metaphor, that starts filling before we get here. I don't think there's very many people that get hired right out of high school and start this, not to say that high school and before you can't be filling that backpack already, but we come to this job with whatever we've done before. And some people come on in their thirties or their forties. Um, there's a whole life before this. So it's not necessarily just starting at zero or an empty backpack from probation on that backpack's always getting filled. So we either have to unload things with potentially with people in Judas profession or each other, you know, or whatever that mechanism is. Yeah, Gary, we all have one. Yeah, Gary, Gary Redding talks about, well, cut a hole in the bottom of your backpack. So you put the rock in and it just falls right through, you know, and it's, you know, there's different ways to do that, like you mentioned. You know, some of it maybe talk to a friend, talk to, to Dr. Long. Um, but, you know, we, we talk to our kids all the time about, you know, don't stuff things down, you know, yeah. talk, talk to us, you know. Uh, we're here to help and we're here to be part of that support group. Which leads me to my next question, and you've touched on it a little bit, but how important was the support group that you had, starting with your father and your stepmother, mm-hmm. to you know, for this to come to a success, successful end? Yeah, so the it was a, definitely a blend of um, personal and professional. I think there was the support of we support you in whatever you need to figure out, and we're here for you along the way, but also the recognition of not everybody's a counselor, a therapist, a, you know, a doctor, that there was a recognition that 
I've got a personal group that's going to support me through whatever that looks like over time, you know, whether that's the how do we support you and the temptation to drink, the everything else you're going to be dealing with, trying to develop some clarity to there also needs to be a professional component at that point. For me, that was the vet center in Mesa, Arizona, kind of getting the professional therapy side of things going. And that was when I actually got formal diagnoses with PTSD and all that. That wasn't something that they just issue on the way out the door from the Marine Corps. It's something that I had to actually get to a point where it was actually going to be assessed. And that's where the TBI discussion came in and actually getting screened a couple times and all that kind of stuff happened. So it's definitely a multi-pronged having the family and the friend support, but also the recognition that and the push to say, we're here for you in the f- typical family sense of unconditional, but we also can't solve whatever you need to do. We don't have the expertise. We don't have the, the knowledge base, I guess. And I think that's the kind of balancing act that we play on our peer support team is a lot of times it is just having somebody to listen or somebody to help you through something or to be there, the safety net metaphor that Judas kind of helped us, help, helped us develop. But there also needs to be a point for both the peer supporter and the person that we're helping to say that this might need to go to the next level. It can't just be a, we shrug our shoulders and say, I don't know, I'm not a therapist. Like, well, maybe that's the trigger point for we might need to involve one. Um, so I, I would say for me personally, it was definitely a mix of having enough humility to say I need to step into a more professional realm that I had avoided like the plague before that. And whatever that meant, whatever diagnosis or whatever stigma that I perceived, like. I was still working on the assumption back then that I can't have a PTSD diagnosis, whether that's whether it's real or not. For me, I can't have that attached because I'm trying to get another job after this. I'm trying to pursue the fire service. I'm trying to do this. I'm trying to do that. Like I can't have that label attached to me and not understanding how that all worked back then. I was avoiding that completely. So I think the balance of having a peer support group of friends and family, but also being able to acknowledge that the next step was necessary was what helped me. So for those that don't maybe have that built-in family friend network like you had, what is it that the department does to help with that? As far as, because you talked about a blend of personal and professional. Um, and my perception of what we have and what we might have may be different, but it, uh, my perception is, is that we, for people that don't have that built into their their life, we may be able to help with both both of those. Yeah, so, you know, to me, it's a matter of just having some type of connection. And I'll actually pause my thoughts on that for a second to answer your question. Um, but we have peer support, we have me, um, that you can reach out to, to try to figure out like, well, what's happening? And what is it that I need to do to not be in this place anymore? So I feel like we have internal um, department resources. There are also things that are external, right? We have crisis lines. Those are on the new posters in the stations. They're first responder specific. But uh, I think we talked about it in the broadcast. One of the things that I want to emphasize again is that we have pathways that we feel are firefighter friendly. So if you need to be evaluated, we can find places where you didn't just go on your last shift to drop off a patient to be evaluated. So they're safer. They're not. I'll never say that that kind of process is comfortable, uh, but we can take some of the obstacles out of the way so that it makes it easier to pursue that. And we have a relationship with Grandview Hospital here in town, 
and we just forged a relationship with Denver Springs up in South Denver, like right around the south end of the tech center there, where we can um, partner with them to have our firefighters evaluated if they're in trouble and to get treatment you know, in different places if that's what's needed. And that's not what is always needed. Let me just be clear about that, you know. So to be talking to someone like a peer supporter or me to just figure out like, what the heck is going on here? What do I need to do? What options do I have? We can help you walk through those options and figure out what's gonna work best for you, what's gonna work best for your work life, your family, but get everything addressed that needs to be addressed. I don't know if that answered your question or not. Yeah, I think so, I think so. Um, my next question would be is what do I do as a per person outside that situation if I see somebody struggling I, I, I don't know how to approach it I don't know how to approach them I do I call you do I, I you know what I'm saying do I call their family member I don't where do I go if, if I see somebody struggling I know they're exhibiting some of the signs and symptoms they may have changed as a person and, and you know the way they're acting or what do, what do I do from an outside perspective to, to help that person out? I, th um, I suppose there's never not one specific answer, but I think Judith hit it with that connection is the first thing. So it may be as simple as you asking or just checking in, hey, are, are things okay? Having a five-minute conversation. And then I suppose for the the bigger piece of that would be knowing what's what's next um, and they may not even know what's next and that's the difficult balancing act is you making the connection is probably starts that conversation hopefully you know especially you being you they're not going to shut you out they're going to probably engage in that conversation um, helping them navigate is that hey do you want to get in touch with a peer supporter here's we know what the lists are they hang up in the fire stations they hang out in all our work areas um, putting them in touch. It doesn't even have to be with one of us specifically. You don't have to find the list and say, call Giacoma. It might be, um, here's the list. These are the phone numbers. You know, if you want to make a contact, it, that may be your role in it is just helping them remind them that there, there is a list of 34 people that are willing to um, connect with you. So to me, that's the first step is remind, maybe that little subtle reminder, because I think for us, we're engaged in the peer support aspects of this job all the time for those who maybe have never needed us they probably don't think about us until they need us or until somebody else does so I think it's easy to forget that we have so many and the way we're growing we'll hopefully be when we do our trainings next year we'll be just shy of 50 peer supporters there's probably one in your station there's probably one that you know or maybe you forgot that they were a peer supporter so I think for the for somebody that's recognizing some things, whether it's habits or those changes in behavior or it's just somebody you do know that's made statements of any kind, you can make that step of, here's the peer support list, these folks will help you, uh, or here's Judith's number if we're to that point as well, and Judith certainly has the kind of world at her fingertips for options, whether that's our team or outside resources, and, and that's in becoming increasingly true of our team as well, like we know what the resources outside, whether it's locally or outside the county or you know, state resources or even nationally, we have all of those things available. It's just that reach out or that first contact that I think is the biggest part, that initial connection and opens the floodgates. Yeah, I, I think you all have a superpower that my over-educated status does not provide to me, right? And that is that you know each other. 
and you have relationships with each other. So although you may not feel close to that person in that moment, because maybe you let some of those connections get a little cooler or cold, um, your previous relationship or your existing relationship with someone is the best thing that you can provide to that person. It's more than what I can provide. You're also eyes and ears on the ground, right? I can't, the peer support team can't be with everyone all the time. So we are, you know, um, the, everyone who works in this department is in a really good position to kind of reach out to someone who's in trouble. And I go back to this idea of connection and I think about being tethered, right? Most of us need to feel tethered in our lives. We need to feel tethered to people, to things that are important to us, uh, tethered to a concept of how we see ourselves being or wanting to be in the world. And we, when those lines get cut, we become untethered. That to me is the biggest risk for suicide. When you feel lost or free floating in life, unconnected to everything around you, um, that connection that you have with that person or that relationship is the best thing to provide one of those tethers really quickly again. And if you reach out to someone, what I, w I don't want people to feel is that you need to solve it for them. You're not in a five-minute conversation. I can't, as a clinician, in a five-minute conversation convince someone that they don't want to be suicidal anymore. The purpose is to just form a connection. Like, hey, you don't seem like yourself right now. I wonder what's going on. Just asking that question can make that person feel more tethered to something in their life and decrease that risk for suicide. And you don't have to have the answers, as John was pointing out. You know, if you're talking to someone and you're kind of like, I don't know what to do at this point. You know, I've made a connection. I'm glad you told me what's going on, but I don't know where to go from here. Then that's when you can reach out to peer support or to me to find out, well, where do we go from here? What options do we have? So I don't want you to feel like if you reach out to someone that you need to know everything that's going to happen from here on out. Just make the connection and we will help you figure out the rest is the way I want people to look at it. I think where I've seen the power of that is with some of the contacts we have with uh, with members of the department re reaching out for peer support is it's not always the getting the call from the, the person you know really well and that they're reaching out because they've known you for 20 years or something. Sometimes a couple of the contacts I've had have been from folks that either were just coming on or were brand new and said, I, I packed up the truck three weeks before this and moved out from California. I don't have anybody here. I don't know anybody. And that might have been the first time I ever met them. And it might have been through exactly what you're describing as somebody who is either a training cadre or somebody meeting somebody on probation and saying, I don't know much, but I know this list, so call. And I've gotten a couple of those calls myself, and I know lots of our peer supporters have. So that might have been the first time we ever met them. So some people do enjoy that connection with somebody that maybe they haven't known for very long or in that case maybe it's a somebody that they didn't really have that option of somebody they'd known for years because they just got here or just didn't have those connections that's part of why we keep such a deep roster of peer supporters there's people of all ranks and different experiences and time on the job personalities <laughs> you know I might not be somebody's cup of tea to reach out to but we have lots of options on that list and we all have different experiences with each other. We're such a relational profession that we like to have lots of options on that list of who to reach out to. Okay, I want to flip it a little bit. So now I'm the person who's struggling, is having difficulty 
you mentioned some of that responsibility is on that person um, to do what? Man, that's a loaded one. But uh, <laughs> to take a step, I guess, is the way I would put it. I, I think we're so we're used to solving people's problems, and we think we need to have a perfect answer to a problem. But man, taking that step today rather than waiting till tomorrow, I think is. I mean, that's what saved my life for sure. Just I don't really know what this looks like going forward, but it's no longer acceptable to do nothing. I think is the acceptance piece of it. Like I've got to be willing to take a step, whether that's just make a connection with somebody. You know, whether it's your officer, it's just a friend on the job or friend outside the job, whatever that is, whoever your person is, I guess, would be the one to start with. Like, I'm kind of at my wit's end. I don't know what to do next. Getting somebody connected to you who will help you figure out what's next. We don't need to have the next five moves figured out, but let's have at least some commitment to making a move and then knowing, I guess, somebody's in your corner to help you get to that, whatever that next thing is, whether that's a clinical um, connection or that's a referral of some sort or that's just I as a peer supporter kind of have taken you as far as I can let's get Judith involved and maybe she can give you know her expertise um, I think it's just that willingness to take a step and it's amazing how that snowballs for people that finally reach that point of acceptance and whether it's suicide or substance abuse or whatever that thing is being able to take it take the first step John another <clears throat> question for you um, so you've been on this journey for a long time um, have you developed any type of for lack of a better words trigger points that kind of clue you into hey it's time for me to check in with somebody uh, in reference to taking care of myself or for yeah so others? yeah and, and I guess more for the person out there that might not know whether they need to reach out to, to somebody yeah. or not I mean like a, you've been on this journey for a long time people that might be you know starting to have issues or things are starting to pile up in their life that just don't know like am I in a place where I need to ask for help or not sure. you know what are those you know do we develop trigger points um, outside of feeling like I feel like I need this right. Like if I can think about it and go, okay, I've got, you know, I've got five things that are pretty heavy, you know, on me right now. This is more than I can handle. Sure. Yeah. So that it's hard to, I guess, answer the bandwidth kind of question without, we don't usually know what that is until we're up against it. So oh, that was the point too far. Uh, but you have enough self-awareness to recognize that you're getting up against it, whether that's with relationships or how many things you're taking on work-wise or emotionally or how you're feeling. I mean, that's a, that's a big one. Um, for me, it's, I've kind of figured out having a healthy balance of staying busy in a sense is positive. So I don't worry so much about burnout's a real thing and it's a real issue. And it's something that I try to stay very aware of how many things I take on project wise or life wise or work wise. But I've also found there's tremendous positive in that too, in being involved and finding for me, it's purposeful work. It's what and whatever that is for you, you know, whatever that thing is. It might be your actual work, or it might be things outside of here. It might be you know, a lot of people find uh, find that in church, or they find that with their family. They find that in outside extracurriculars, or it's just this job. Um, and I think all of those are good. Whatever that gives you that sense of purpose. So for me, it's really is what I'm doing. Does this feel purposeful, or am I just doing a lot of stuff? And I think finding that balance is what helps me. So I don't approach things from the perspective of, oh man, if I take on one more thing, I'm going to be overwhelmed. I look at it as, is this worth doing? Is the work worth doing or not? And if it's not, then that's the thing that goes. 
And if it is worth doing, then I'm, to me, that's kind of a, a fuel rather than, than something that's a headwind that you're fighting all the time. It's like turn all those things into kind of a tailwind, and that's very motivation. Like to me, that's kind of the self-perpetuating fuel for me. Is like, and that's my point of like, man, if I start feeling like I'm doing a little too much or up against that bandwidth, then something's got to go. What is it? What feels the least purposeful out of these things? And that's what's got to go. And that can be relationships, that can be habits, you know, drinking, smoking, eating, whatever, exercising, whatever those things are. Or it can be literal, like, projects at work or outside of work. I think it's different for everybody, but um, is my work purposeful? Is that kind of my question to answer that? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it, we talked about that on a recent episode, and we talked um, about living a purposeful life. Um, but we talked about it from a perspective of, we need goals. Yeah. Like we've got to have this goal and I've got to achieve that and that provides purpose in my life. So I think your perspective is an interesting perspective and only almost the converse of that. And, and I, as soon as you talked about being tethered, I thought about that's, that's providing purpose in my life, a, a reason for me to do what I'm doing, my why, right? And so um, there, are, there are benefits to living a purposeful life other than you know, just constant goal setting and trying to achieve and trying to be better. Sometimes maybe better is a little bit more basic than what I what I maybe thought of before. And maybe better is, hey, I'm at the bottom now and just tomorrow needs to be better than today. Yeah. And that's my purpose. Yeah. And it kind of goes back to what you said in the very beginning of this, John, when we were talking. Um, I might not be your exact words, but what I wrote down was have something in your life that's positive to work towards. Yeah. Um, you know, and, yeah. and that is the goal, the, you know, something meaningful, you know, your why, your purpose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think having, and it, it might be a bunch of what you'd call little things, or it might be that one big goal. I don't think they necessarily have to be tied to profession or status or money or anything, because you're always just chasing the next thing. I don't think you find it doing those things, or I don't, I shouldn't say anybody else, but I don't find it by, you know, chasing any of those things there's always a next and you'll never feel like it's enough for me it's just finding the the purpose in the work you're doing not necessarily you can want results and expect results but i don't tie it really to the result the recognition the status the any of those things that are really fleeting i think it's just whatever purpose you find and what you're actually doing is for me personally is what just what works and that's kind of the, the thing that i've seen that doesn't really fall off the table it's just whatever it is it has to kind of fit that criteria for me. It's, is this worth work worth doing? And what, I guess, what makes it worth doing in that? Um, I try to keep that same mindset for anything in life, not just profession, but. Gotta feed your soul for sure. Yeah. And whatever that is for you. Mm -hmm. Like for me, it's like, if you make it about other people and not just, not just from like running calls aspect, cause that can, that's, that's our work, right? That's our, that's what we're mission. supposed to do when we show up. That's our mission. That's not That's not exceptional. That's what we're supposed to do when we show up to work. The more about making everything else about other people, it made it easier for me to deal with my own stuff when I tied a lot of purpose to doing things for other people, especially when it wasn't expected or it wasn't – there was no tangible benefit necessarily. It's more just the work of doing that is worth it on its own. Is there a point where 
you look at that and say, hey, I've done a lot for other people, but now I have to think about myself. You know, so you're thinking a lot about creating things and doing things for other people, or is by doing things for other people, is that doing something for yourself? I think what you just said, I mean, for me, it's the, it's the virtue is its own reward kind of thing. Like I, when we talked about setting goals and having that as a thing that keeps you moving, for me, it's not necessarily a, I need to achieve this or else anything less is failure. For me, it's like, I'm particularly afraid of failure, not particularly interested in making decisions out of fear at this point in my life. It's really just the, the work itself to me is the reward of maybe somebody eventually pats you on the back or maybe somebody says hey that thing you did for me resulted in why but I'm not necessarily waiting on the that answer that's not really what motivated me to begin with um, it's probably not a direct answer to what you're asking but it's for me that's that is the, the purpose in it is the what work are we doing and if it's geared toward other people it tends to be worth the doing is, is kind of my in my mind like I've set goals for myself where I go and do a thing and say that wasn't as rewarding as I thought it would be even though I achieved whatever the objective was mm -hmm. um, or you know, maybe you got a raise maybe you got a promotion maybe you got a whatever previous life an example of that in 2006 I was sitting for a meritorious promotion for uh, to corporal which is a non-commissioned officer rank puts you in kind of a survive uh, a uh, supervisory position in the Marine Corps, a team leader role. And I was sitting on this meritorious board knowing that I'm probably going to go into this the most prepared person as far as read and experience and all that kind of stuff. Felt pretty good about that. But really getting through the process, and I did get promoted off of that, I, I realized at the end of it that even though I thought the goal was let's get there and get promoted and get pinned on next month, that happened. Really the gratifying part of it or the thing that I enjoyed was the people along the way saying, this is what you should be doing, not just the go get that rank. It was more of the process of getting there, like the people impact are all on the way, being kind of self-reflecting on how am I going to get there and actually be good in this role, not how am I going to get promoted. Um, that was an example for me of, of, of that process, I guess. To answer your question, I guess, more specifically about at what point do you have to make it about yourself? I think it's, I think it's, hopefully it's both all the time. Um, hopefully I don't ever take a perspective of it's time to not look at other people and start looking at what I can do for myself. Cause I've, I've done that before and it wasn't particularly gratifying or rewarding in any way. It didn't put me in a real good place. So I, think that would be my answer to that yeah and I, and I don't mean to suggest that you selfishly sure I mean I just is there a point at where you through self-reflection say I've been taking care of other people for so long now I need to take care of myself a little bit and yeah. whether that's you know recognizing what Josh talked about and um, I've got a lot of stuff going on and I've got to remove something or yeah. if it's I haven't checked in with my counselor for a year and it's time for me to not do this meeting I need to go check in for my with my counselor, and I guess that's what I sure, need. Not yeah. a, not a selfish like, hey, it's all about me. Yeah. But hey, for my well-being, it's all about me right now. Yeah, I think especially in this profession that we need to have that whatever that compass is, whether that's a friend, spouse, like an external factor tapping you on the shoulder and saying, hey, 
it needs to be about you right now. You've got something to work on, whether it's negative or positive. Um, I think we need to have that, or maybe it's an internal thing where we say, man, I've been doing X, Y, and Z for others. I need to be willing to take care of myself. Because I do think we run that risk sometime of making it so much about other people that we don't work on ourselves. So I think, yeah, to your point, I, I found myself in that role before too, where even when I was going through probably the darkest stuff, I was still helping other guys, like other other vets or other guys that were dealing with the exact same thing that I wasn't willing to work on myself. Oh, you should just, I hate those words because I used them before, and oh, you should just, you know, go to counseling, or you should just stop drinking, or you should just not put a pistol in your mouth, all those things, and then there I was doing the same thing. So I think to your point, in that sense, yeah, we better have a, a mechanism, whatever that is, to say, I can be doing a lot of good by a lot of other people while self-destructing myself. And I wish I knew what that balance was for everybody because we'd <laughs> tell them. <laughs> well, I, I have to say I'm really relieved because I was feeling like one of the most selfish therapists ever because I do believe that there is a point at which um, I need to stop taking care of others in order to take care of myself. And I think that... Um, I mean, my job provides me with a lot of reward. It is connected strongly to my sense of purpose in the world, to my, like my view of myself, who I want to be, how I want to be. Uh, but there are times where that needs to, I need to push the pause button on that to do some other things for me. And what I choose to do for me is just related to the other things that are important to me, the other values I have. And our values differ from person to person. So to care for yourself is to kind of figure out what's important to me and am I caring for all these aspects of myself, all these things that are important to me? Because if you just go in one direction with it, you're gonna wind up imbalanced and not so happy a person, I think. Mm -hmm. After a while, you'll just start to feel more empty, even if you're engaging with one of those things in a very strong way. I think it'll lead to emptiness in other areas that will ultimately affect how you feel. So it's that balance, it's that moderation that we talk about. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah. you know, too too much of a good thing will still kill you type thing. Right, yeah. exactly. You know, so yeah. it makes sense. Before we wrap this up, I want to kind of just go around the table and make sure that we've, we've touched on everything that you feel is important to talk about. And I want to start with Josh and see, is there anything that we haven't mentioned yet that you'd like to mention in, in before we leave today? I think what I would like to wrap this up with is when we started this podcast, we kind of jokingly talked about having like a listener or, you know, 100,000 listeners. And I think what we both agreed on was as long as we're positively impacting one person that's listening out there, then there's purpose to doing this. And, you know, listening to this conversation today, that's what I kept thinking is like how many people out there would listen to this and be able to take something positive from it. So I just want to say again, thank you for, you know, you know, Dr. Long and for John Giacoma. Thank you for coming on. Thank you for sharing your story. Like I, the word I used before your vulnerability um, and, um, you know, spending the time here with us to, you know, push this information out and, and just, have a positive impact on on at least one person if not multiple people's lives out there doc 
I don't know. I think we covered a lot of important things today. Nothing's really standing out to me as something we've missed. I, I do hope that people hear that you need to take that first step. It's something that you had mentioned, like what does someone do if they're in trouble? I think it's trying to understand that this isn't a time to have shame and fear. It's to just say, hey, this is where I am. A lot of people are in this place at different points in their lives, and the best thing I can do is to just reach out to somebody. Yeah, I think that's that would be, I guess, to reinforce the biggest point would be that nobody's alone in any of this. As alone as you could feel, you're truly not. Um, so whether that's our literal peer support team or that's the peer support within your life, your family, friends, strangers, whoever that is, that really it's that connection. Like that has to be the step you take. It can't be an option to check out. It can't be an option to indulge those kind of darkest thoughts or if you feel yourself getting to that point even if it's absolute crisis connect with somebody there is even if it's a stranger like that's why we have so many people on our roster for peer support uh, you got co-workers family friends um, anybody have to be willing to make that step even if you don't know what the three steps after that are Just that that's the most important thing I guess reflecting back on this conversation, I've, I've talked a lot about how naive I am about this um, problem that we have in, in society and in the fire service. And um, I guess I'd like to stress the importance of, for people like myself that haven't been touched like this, just the importance of listening and the importance of being available. Yes. Um, just because you've never been touched by it and just because you don't know a lot about it doesn't mean you don't have compassion for other people. And sometimes just sitting down and listening uh, means a lot to people and can help them take them from a darker place to someplace just a little bit lighter um, and, and maybe direct them to the people that can help them more. Um, so don't be closed off um, because you think you don't know what to do. And sometimes knowing what to do is just sitting and listening and nodding your head and going, okay, let's see if we can figure this out together. You don't have to have all the answers. So that's, that's what I would take from this. All right. Thank you to John. Thank you, Dr. Judith Long. Thank you to Josh. Um, it's been a very enlightening uh, conversation here today. Um, I'm with you, Josh. If one person gets some benefit from the benefit from this and we can help one person out then uh, it's been more than worth the time and effort that we've put into here so thank you all for coming on as normal we'll lead out with some music and today uh, we're talking about a band called Rodello's Machine uh, with the earthy and robust vocals of Nate Donis and the creative production of Colby Nickelbach Knickerbocker Rodell's Machine takes on an animated and lively spirit full of inspired melodies and lyrics on a warm acoustic backbone. Their self-titled EP has received multiple place placements on nationwide TV programs including uh, MTV's Degrassi High and receives thousands of plays per week on Pandora Radio and enjoys international distribution on syndicated radio. Their new album Red Dust sets off on the same journey featuring new musicians uh, Phil Woodring, Jacob Miranda, and Balji Rao, uh, who add their expertise and flavor to each song. The violin uh, of Melissa Barrison contributes much to the unique sound with the intricate lines that swim and dive between the themes. 
Fans describe their sound as Eddie Vedder meets Tom Waits at a folk festival. So taking us out the door today with The World Inside is Rodello's Machine. Thanks, everybody. Be nice to each other. It's important. Have a good day. Yeah, your heart is a sun and it shines as it opens. Well, your heart is a sun and it shines as it opens. Yeah, your heart is a sun and it shines as it opens. Well, your heart is a sun and it shines as it opens. Yeah, your bones are the earth and they sing. With the mountains Well, your bones are the earth And they sing With the mountains Yeah, your bones are the earth And they sing With the mountains Well, your bones are the earth And they sing With the mountains Why would you look outside yourself When you have all of the world inside Why would you look Outside yourself when you have all of the world is inside. Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world yeah, your inside? Mind is a space that creates your horizon. Well, your mind is a space that creates the horizon. Yeah, your mind is a space that creates your horizon. Outside yourself when you have all of the world inside. Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? Why would you look outside yourself when you have all of the world inside? Why would you look outside yourself when you Why would you look outside yourself when you